turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel again, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I promise last time. Um, we've been here in this text for three weeks. It may seem like an odd place to spend three weeks, and yet there's much here. There's much in the story we need to see. And so uh, thank you for bearing with me. Um, recall last couple of weeks we've been looking at this really from a wide angle lens, talking about and taking up the motif of exile and return and seeing how that plays out throughout the story of Scripture. And this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at the text as well and see what it says. So if you have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this not out of ritual or ceremony. We do this because we believe this is the written Word of God, that when we read it, God Himself is speaking directly to us, and we stand in reverence of the King of all creation. So let's go ahead and read 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Anahim, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man, every man with his household. And so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we thank you for receiving us into your blessed presence this morning. We know, Lord, if it were left up to us that we would not have access to the throne room of grace, but we can come confidently into your presence because of the work of your Son. We have access in him by the one Spirit to our Father. So thank you for receiving us. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for pouring your Spirit out upon us. Thank you for promising to take this word and impress it upon our minds and hearts in such a way that we're made more and more into the image of your Son. And so, Lord, we ask if there is any among us who do not yet know the peace that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ, that this morning might be the morning that they hear the gospel, that they recognize their need for your Son as their Savior. And we ask this in the precious name of that Savior Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I wonder if you're familiar with uh, an old poem written by Eugene Field entitled Little Boy Blue. You ever heard of that before? Well, if you haven't, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it goes like this. Um, the little toy dog is covered with dust. But sturdy and staunch he stands. And the little toy soldier is red with rust, and his musket molds in his hands. Time was when the little toy dog was new, and the soldier was passing fair. And that was the time when our little boy blue kissed them and put them there. Now don't you go till I come, he said, and don't you make any noise. So toddling off to his trundle bed, he dreamt of the pretty toys. And as he was dreaming, an angel song awakened our little boy blue. Oh, the years are many, the years are long, but the little toy friends are true. A faithful to the little boy blue they stand, each in the same old place, awaiting the touch of a little hand, the smile of a little face. 
And they wonder as waiting the long years through in the dust of that little chair, what has become of our little boy blue since he kissed them and put them there? The little toy dog and the little toy soldier in that poem are the picture of faithfulness and loyalty to the little boy. They listened and obeyed the voice of their master. They heard and heeded his command. We are not much like them. <laughs> but we should be, and that's really kind of what we're reminded through this text this morning. This morning, the main idea of our passage and what we see in our passage is that the Lord is a good and faithful king, so we should hear and heed his word. That's the big idea of this morning's text, is that the Lord is a good and faithful king, so we should hear and heed his word. Don't take my word for it. Let's see it together in the text, shall we? 2 Samuel 2, 1 through 4a, we're reminded right at the outset that remember, David is an exiled, anointed king. We saw that the last two weeks. We've, we've read in 1 Samuel how David was chosen of the Lord. He was anointed by Samuel. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. We've heard about how Jonathan, Abigail, and even Saul himself have testified that the Lord was giving the kingdom of Israel into David's hands, right? Saul said to David in 1 Samuel 24, 20, he said these words, And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. That's Saul. And so we've just read the pronouncement of the death of Saul and his sons in, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. David is the inevitable successor to the throne of Israel. And so now that the only obstacle to the throne, his arch nemesis Saul, has been removed, what will David do? Well, we read after his lament in verse 1 that David inquires of the Lord. And this is incredibly significant. It says in verse 1, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? See, even in that verse, the, the Bible is telling us that this is not simply a king like the king of the nations seeking the favor of his deity or divining for some military advantage before he enters into his homeland or placating a god in order to get an edge against his adversaries. This is not a king like the king of the nations. This is a king that's different. This is a king that is humble and obedient not presuming to know what his sovereign would have him do, but instead knowing he must inquire even before he moves. David is a man under authority. He is a vassal of the kingdom of God. The Lord is king and David knows it. That's actually the first thing we see in the text. Notice first in the text that David demonstrates the depth of his dependence upon the word of the Lord. Try to say that three times fast, right? David demonstrates the depth of his dependence upon the word of the Lord. David doesn't presume to just need a little bit of help in order to know where to go, as though he needed permission to go up, and then he said, fine, I'll take it from there. Instead, he asked, should I go up? And the Lord responds, go up. And David says, but where shall I go? David needs specific instructions. The Lord doesn't respond, by the way, with, oh, wherever, I don't know, I don't care, just go up. You'll figure it out when you get there. 
Listen, that may be, seem silly to us that we would have to say that, but, but there are evangelicals who depict the Lord in that light. In fact, there's a well-known Christian author who depicts God like this. In a story he tells about attempting to purchase a home in Seattle, uh, that, that house falls through and he wasn't able to make the purchase. And he goes on to explain that at first he was very upset, even at the Lord. But then he realized that the Lord was actually upset too, because the Lord really wanted him to have that house. What? That's not who the Lord is. It's not how he's revealed himself to us in his word. Show me that in the Bible. Friends, God knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing that God does not know, nothing that is hidden from his sight. God knows where David must go, and God directs David and knows his end. See, see, we are to recognize that the scriptures teach clearly that you and I, friends, are dependent creatures. So David went up. In fact, that, that, that phrase, go up or went up, it occurs in short succession here in verses 1 through 2 several times, doesn't it? The Lord says to him, go up. Where shall I go up? The Lord says Hebron. So David went up. David's return from exile is clearly depicted as an ascent up and out. See, David not only ascends to Hebron... But according to verse 4, David ascends to the throne over the tribe of Judah. Now there's more ascending to do in the life of David. He's not quite yet king of all Israel. But I don't want you to miss the picture painted here and the lesson we're to learn from the picture that's painted here. David's ascension is connected to his recognition that the Lord is king of Israel, not David. <laughs> David listens and obeys. David is the vassal. Yahweh, the Lord, is king. This entire narrative of, of the book of First and Second Samuel together has made this clear, right? Saul rebelled against the Lord and was deposed. The suzerain, the Lord, selected a new vassal to reign in his place. And the new vassal is demonstrating what the Lord's anointed must be. Friends, this is the starting point. The king of Israel, the king of God's kingdom, will inquire of the Lord. He will hear and heed. He will listen and obey, for there is no other way. In fact, this is not just the starting point. This is the middle point, and it's the ending point, and it's every other point. The true king of Israel will be subjected to the true king of Israel. That's the next thing we see in the text. Notice that. The true king of Israel will be subjected to the true king of Israel. That's actually one of the primary lessons of First and Second Samuel as a whole. The Lord is king, so Israel should hear and heed his word. Do you remember our memory verse from last month in the book of Judges, right? The clear indictment against Israel there. Most of you know how that goes. There was no king of Israel. In those days, there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, there's a depiction of lawlessness there, and we often focus on the second part of that verse, don't we? Oh, it's just awful. Everybody was doing what's right in his own eyes. But did you know the first part of that verse is very, very important? In those days, there was no king of Israel. Friends, there should have been a king of Israel. The Lord was king of Israel. <laughs> that, that's an issue. 
We, there should have been a king in the land. And at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we see that phrase that in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. And, and that might seem like it has nothing to do with there being no king. So everyone in the land is doing what's right in his own eyes. But it's got everything to do with that statement. The word being rare in the land is directly connected to there being no king in the land. And therefore, the people doing whatever is right in their own eyes. The kingdom of God, listen, we always describe the kingdom of God in this way, right? God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's how we describe the kingdom of God. Well, God's rule or God's reign is God's word. God's people must listen and obey as the Lord makes clear in places like Deuteronomy 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 3. We know it better from Matthew 4, 4, right? Man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. When we read in 1 Samuel 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, we're not just reading a statement about the lack of prophetic activity. More specifically, because of the failure of the priesthood, we're reading that there's no instruction in the word of God either. See, it was not common in those days for leaders to inquire of the Lord. It was not common for the people to seek their God. Instead, people presume how to live. Leaders led according to what they said in their hearts. And this comes to the fullest expression in 1 Samuel 8, where Israel rejects the Lord from being their king. In fact, if we're careful readers, by the time we get to 1 Samuel 8, we know that that's already been done practically. They, they've, they have not ever really been interested in the word of the Lord or his reign as king. They reject his reign in favor for the course of this world. Sound familiar? Are you tracking? To listen and obey the word of the Lord is to receive the Lord as king. To ignore and disobey is to rebel against his rule. It's a fundamental lesson in First and Second Samuel as a whole. Hearing and heeding leads to a life of blessing, and to disregard the word leads to a life of iniquity. This is, by the way, the primary difference between Saul and David, is it not? Saul repeatedly fails to listen and obey. And so in chapter 15, we read the final prosecution and judgment against Saul in verse 22. This is such a significant verse, by the way. He says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Listen, we know he delights in sacrifices and burnt offerings, don't we? I mean, he's the one who commanded them. But the irony is those sacrifices should be done in reverent fear for the one who has commanded them. Instead, they simply presented one more opportunity for Israel to disregard the instruction of the Lord. So Samuel goes on, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. See, friends, the Lord does delight in the sacrifices that he had graciously instituted for the forgiveness of their sins and the blessing of his people in that particular time. They are themselves the fruit of listening and obeying. In fact, you could not offer a burnt offering biblically without listening and obeying. You can try, but you'd end up like Nadab and Abihu. 
Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. The point is to listen to anyone other than the Lord is rebellion. To presume, to guess, to assume or simply try to do on your own, that's idolatry. And this is sin. Hear me. To take the posture of autonomy is rebellion. To take the posture of independence is idolatry. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so because we know Saul rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has also rejected Saul from being king. Meanwhile, David is depicted as a man who inquires of the Lord. This is the contrast throughout. And of course, this is a fundamental lesson, not just in Samuel, by the way, but in all of the Bible. Adam was created to listen and obey. He chose divination. He chose to know the way without the Lord. Israel is clearly a new Adam, right? For example, consider the determining factor for the success of Joshua in Joshua 1.8. We love this verse, don't we? Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Interestingly enough, we read as a side note over and over again about David that David had much success. David had good success. David had more success. We know that the Lord was with him and for him, but we should understand that David, like Joshua, meditated on the word of the Lord. David sought the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. He heard and obeyed. Here's the point. The story of the Old Testament is the story of the kingdom of God. Initially brought forth in creation itself in the garden. Meant to spread as a kingdom spreads throughout the whole earth until the knowledge of God filled the whole earth. Until his reign and kingship was over every square inch of the earth. And that's what we would refer to as shalom. All things working together as they might, perfectly reflecting the glory of God as they are intended to do, led by God's vassals, his servants. David is, as we see him in chapter 2, inquiring of the Lord, seeking of the Lord, listening to the Lord, doing exactly what the Lord commands. David is the king par excellence of the Old Testament precisely because of what we read in 2 Samuel 2.1. David is the man after God's own heart because he listens and obeys. In fact, David's picturing the blessed man we read about in Psalm 1, isn't he? Who walks not in the counsel of, of, of the wicked and stands in this path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law he meditates day and night. David's picturing that for us. So what I'd like to do next is, is I want to show this to you. I want to build from the scriptures this inseparable tie between hearing and heeding or listening and obeying and success or prospering or blessedness. This is the next point. There is an inseparable tie between hearing and heeding and success or, or, or prospering or blessedness. Because this is what the scriptures have done in the Old Testament. Remember... After Israel rejected the Lord in chapter 8, 
The Lord offers them a covenant ratification ceremony in chapter 12. Though Israel had rejected the Lord, he makes clear, hey, I'm still king of Israel. And he reminds Israel that as long as they listen and obey, things will go well with them. They will experience the blessing of the Lord. But if they do not, if they refuse to hear and heed, then they will be swept away just like the nations who possessed the land before them. See, the rest of the Old Testament is simply the unfolding and result of a life under the rule of various kings who do not listen and obey. Sure, there are a couple of exceptions. But by and large, the kings, instead of inquiring of the Lord, inquire of their Baals, their Ashtaroths, their mediums, and their necromancers. As Isaiah asks rhetorically in Isaiah 8, 19, should not a people seek their God? But Israel's leaders, they, they do not inquire of the Lord as David their father did. And eventually what happens? Into exile they go. Because the promised land became it so facto like the nations. And you know, that's something we might miss. Did you know that before Israel is ever exiled, they're exiled? <laughs> Listen, the promised land, full of people who do not hear and heed the word of the Lord is not a promised land. Right? Any place, doesn't matter where, if it's full of people who are not actually under the rule of God, if they're not listening or obeying, that is not a blessed land. It can't be. Why? Because there's no blessing apart from walking in the light of the Lord. None. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, God teaches us that the return from exile will come through the kingship of the one who inquires of the Lord perfectly. And I love it. Again, Israel reading this after being taken captive in, a, in Assyria or Babylon, if you can picture that, they would be reminded that what they needed from the return of exile was a man after God's own heart. They needed someone who did not disregard the word of the Lord, who did not presume to know what Israel needs, but instead sought or seeks the Lord, listened and obeys every word out of the mouth of the Lord. They needed a greater son of David. And of course the Lord sent one, didn't he, in the fullness of time. Jesus came to listen and obey so that we might listen and obey. See, we know that David is a type of the coming Christ. David is depicted as a man after God's own heart who inquires of the Lord, who listens and obeys the Lord's instructions. David does not rebel by disregarding the word of the Lord. David does not seek the Baals or the Ashtaroths or the Necromancers or a medium. David inquires of the Lord. David does not presume to know what he must do. Instead, David lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We know that this is not always true of David, though, don't we? In fact, no more does David reach the very peak of his reign or his monarchy, monarchy than he will begin his descent. But we're not there yet. David will eventually, tragically, of course, instead of inquiring of the Lord... Inquire of his servants about another man's wife. But David's failures will disqualify him from bringing about the real return from exile that God's people needed. And yet David is still a type. But Jesus is the anti-type. Jesus 
is the antitype. Jesus' life was a continuous, unbroken, perfect submission to the reign of God. Jesus always inquired from God his Father. Only speaking what he had heard from his father. Only doing what his father had instructed him. Jesus never rebelled. Not once. Jesus never presumed to know the way apart from the will of his father. Jesus always listened. Jesus always obeyed. Jesus always heard. Jesus always heeded. So Jesus is indeed the last Adam. He's the true and better Joshua. He's the true and better David. The king who came to do God's will. And Hebrews 10 makes that point clear in regards to Jesus' coming to listen and obey. Listen to what Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 says about Jesus. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me. Why have I come? To do your will, O God. This is why Jesus came. He came to hear and to heed. And friends, hear me. You recognize that in our fallen nature, you and I do not delight in the will of the Lord. Did you know that? We don't delight in His law. In fact, we despise it. Like the disciples in the boat, we all cry out over fear of death. In our disbelief, we doubt that God is able and willing to save. We doubt that he even cares. His word swears that he is merciful. His word swears he's gracious and abounding in love, willing to forgive. But in reality, his word often falls on deaf ears. This is why Jesus descended. Because we say in our hearts things that are not true. We refuse to obey the word of the Lord. So Jesus took our eternal exile upon himself. He clothed himself in our weakness and received in himself the punishment of all of our sins. Every last one. This is what the Bible says and so this is what we must believe. Our true and better David has ascended. See this picture it reminded Israel and reminds us of what is required. There is no ultimate return from exile without a head that listens and obeys. Without a Joshua that delights in the law of the Lord. That's the stipulation. It's irrevocable. It had to be accomplished. And indeed, Jesus has accomplished it. He has obeyed to the point of death. Even death upon a cross. And God has exalted him. He has been enthroned above all powers. He offers terms of peace as the king of peace to all people who will receive him as our savior and king. And if we do, we have ascended with him. We are his bride. We are even at this very moment with him in the heavenly Hebron as we await for him to bring the heavenly Hebron back to us. We ascend because we are united by faith with the one who came to do the will of God our Father. By faith, listen, by faith, I say this every week, but I can't get over it. By faith, his righteous life has been imputed to us. We know that this is the gospel. This is what's pictured and portrayed in the law of the prophets. The good news is that David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to do the will of God. Even the will of God that he should be crushed for our iniquities. 
And so the good news is that Jesus's perfect record, his perfect listening and obeying by faith becomes your record. It's astounding. So that God the Father looks upon you as though every word he's ever spoken, you've kept and obeyed. Did you not hear that? <laughs> this is how God sees all who trust in his son alone. And now our rebellion, past, present, and future, are saying in our heart that this is a lie or that is a lie. All of it was imputed to Jesus as he hung upon that cursed tree in our stead. Amen. But saints, there's more. See, see, the gospel is that we are no longer what we were. In fact, it needs to be a fundamental part of the gospel as we understand it. It is not enough to say that Jesus came to do the will of God, so I don't have to. If you're ever tempted to say that, you don't even really understand the gospel. The good news is Jesus came to do the will of God, so that I might also. Imperfectly, yes. Jesus came to redeem us saints from the guilt and power of sin. The gospel is not that the law of God has been removed. That wouldn't even be good news. The gospel is that our guilt has been removed, praise God. The gospel is that there is a king who hears and heeds perfectly and all who trust in him have the words of life. The gospel is that there is a priest who came not to offer burnt offerings, but to listen and obey even to the point of death, offering himself in the place of sinners and atoning for our sin. Praise be to God. The gospel is there's a prophet who has heard the words of his father and speaks the words of his father perfectly and faithfully. And so the gospel is not that you and I have been released from the law. The gospel is that the law of God has been written upon our hearts. We are new creations who imperfectly yet really desire to hear and heed the voice of our Lord. You understand this cannot be removed from your understanding of what the gospel says. Where you end up with a gospel that saves you from punishment, but leaves you destitute of real blessing. Blessing in and of itself is delighting in the instruction of the Lord. You recognize that. We're not talking about prosperity gospel here. Our blessing is we get to know God and know him better. And as we know him, we delight in him. All who know him desire to please him. And so he'll hear me. We, we have to do some theological work here, so, so bear with me. We, we don't need to make too sharp a distinction between law and gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, we know that there is a distinction specifically when it comes to terms of how we're made right with God, right? Are we made right with God by law, by listening and obeying the law? That's a, that's a hard no, right? It's not listening and obeying. It's listening and believing, it's hearing with faith. It's hearing the gospel message of who Christ is, what he's done, and placing all of our trust in him. So, so when it comes to justification or how we're made right with God, the law condemns us. But the gospel is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so as important as our justification is, that's not the whole of our salvation, is it? We who are justified are also being sanctified. 
Our hope is in our future glorification when we finally listen and obey like our Savior Jesus Christ. We're awaiting a salvation that will free us completely between the battle of flesh and the spirit. Hear me. The point is that the gospel is not freedom to do whatever is right in my own eyes. I, I get that you're like, okay, pastor, of, of course it's not. We know that. But do you? Do you recognize that your freedom is not to do whatever is right in your own eyes? You have been freed to obey. There's your freedom. You've been freed to submit. You've been freed to have God reign over you in such a way that he determines what is right and directs the course of your life. There is no sphere of your life that this is not true of. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. Church, hear me. We are not freed from listening and obeying. We are freed to listen and obey. That's our freedom. That's not a begrudging thing, by the way. That's a hallelujah, amen thing. All right, we're, we're almost done. We need to be a people, of course, who inquire of the Lord about everything, right? Just like David, desiring to hear the words of our fathers. And here's where I want to leave you with. I think it's, it's probably tempting to think of terms like this. Okay, you know what? You're right. We need, to, we need to inquire of the Lord. So you know what I need to do? I need to read my Bible more. Okay, that's true. Yeah, and I get it. But, but let me just tell you what the problem with that is. Most of us probably feel like, you know what? If I want to hear and heed, what I need to do is read my Bible check my box, and then I go out and live my life without any reference to the fact that my God is with me all the time. See, this is about a heart posture. This is about an orientation of my life. Lord, should I do this or that? Should I seek this or that? How should I walk in obedience to this situation? We are constantly submitting to the Lord, inquiring of the Lord, and asking the Lord for direction and guidance. Now, now, we understand that, yes, the Lord is not giving any new revelation through prophets. But, friends, that doesn't mean that he ceased to guide and direct his people by his Spirit. He has not ceased to answer his people when they seek him. He's not ceased to draw near to them. Friends, this is not simply about reading your Bible more. In fact, some of the ways we go about reading our Bibles is just symptomatic of the problem itself. Here's the point. In our humanity, even those of us who have truly been regenerated, truly been saved, there remains a tendency in us toward autonomy and independence. We lean this way. And, and as Americans, even more, right? It's what this country is built on. Freedom and independence. It's the pool that we swim in. We have a natural tendency that still pulls us away from understanding that every single part of our lives is under the sovereign reign of a good and gracious God who desires to direct us in his perfect will. Every part. 
And so therefore, what we need is an intentional reorientation of our mind and heart. We need a renewal. Now, do we need to read our Bibles more? Yes. Do we need prayer? Yes. Do we need community? Yes. These are all safety nets for us because of this tendency for us to go our own way. Because of our tendency to do everything that is right in our own eyes. He graciously and kindly gives us those means of grace. But friends, it's more about our posture of heart that we are like David, continually inquiring of the Lord. Listen, be like my five-year-old. <laughs> she wants to know everything about everything, right? We all know that stage, don't we? The question stage. Well, when we're going to get there? Well, what are we going to do when we get there? Who's all going to be there? Am I wearing the right thing okay? Daddy, are we going to have fun? What time are we going to get home? What are we going to do after that? What are we going to do after that? Friends, listen, there is a tendency for us parents to say, oh my goodness, would you stop asking questions? You know the Lord never does that? Never. There's never a point where the Lord says, stop inquiring of me. No. He delights in it. He wants you to give his ear no rest. And yet, this is the posture of the Christian in every area of our life. Lord, what should I do? Lord, how should I walk in this way? How should I obey this scripture in this way? Father, what areas in my life can I improve in this way? What areas in life can I glorify you? Everything, everything is a direction inquiring of the Father. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. We are a people who inquire of the Lord. And so, here, I want to wrap this up. And, and, and this is what I want to do. In conclusion, the Lord is King. So we should hear and heed his word. And what I want you to do, I want to close with a prayer that I found and something I've been trying to teach our, our children. I thought we really would all benefit from hearing this prayer and really praying for it more often. I don't think it's in your notes, but it is the online copy. And if you ever want it or reference, I'll tell you. Jane Taylor wrote this, and I found this in a little prayer booklet. It says this, Lord, teach this little child to pray, and now accept my prayer. Thou hearest every word I say, for thou art everywhere. A little sparrow cannot fall unnoticed, Lord, by thee. And though I am so young and small, thou dost take care of me. Teach me to do whatever is right, and when I sin, forgive. And make it still my chief delight to love thee while I live. Friends, this is the posture of a Christian. The reality is, do you need your heart reoriented towards Christ this morning? Do you need to be reminded that true Christians who follow him Yes, we have autonomy and independence as it stands in this country, but friends, we are freed to listen and obey. We are freed to serve King Jesus. We really are in a monarchy, <laughs> and Jesus is king. <laughs> His word is what we hear and heed. And though we do not do it perfectly, there's one who did it perfectly so that our king sees us as those who obey his law, even though we do not, praise be to the Lord. Let's stand together and close in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we, we do, Lord, seek and ask for your help towards that end. In no way thinking, Lord, that we could ever add anything to the work of Christ. Or we could ever merit anything. But knowing, Father, what you've graciously given us in him, Lord, would you help us to be a people who delight in your law more and more.
Lord, are people who desire to hear and heed your word, people who desire to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray for the heart of the Christian here this morning who maybe has bought the lie that um, there are spheres and areas of their life where they have absolute and complete autonomy and independence apart from you reigning as their king. Father, that's the exact opposite of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who follows their King Jesus. Father, knowing that, that you are in control of, of, Lord, all things, knowing that you desire to know us, knowing that you are not a cruel dictator, but a loving, gracious king, a king who has given his own life for his people. So, Father, help us to see that as true in every sphere of our lives and help us to be a people who inquire of the Lord who are so filled with the knowledge of his word and with uh, communion and relationship with him in prayer and are so intricately tied to the community of believers that surround us that, Lord, it's not simply us asking all the questions without any direction, but we're constantly being pointed toward your doctrine and your word, your spirit guiding us, directing our lives in every course. Father, I'm afraid there are many who continue to make decisions apart from heeding and hearing the word of the Lord, apart from even inquiring of the Lord. So Lord, help us to keep that ever before us. And for those who are here who do not know Christ, Lord, I pray first and foremost that you make them, Lord, know in reality and recognize that they don't belong to you. Or they wouldn't think that they belong to you when they really don't. And Lord, this is key. The question is, who is their king? Are they doing what is right in their own eyes? Or if they trusted in the one who perfectly listened and obeys to his father. Father, if there's one here this morning that knows that, Lord, they're living right now as if they are king, would you convict their hearts of your, uh, the truth of your word? Father, would you speak directly to them? Would you remind them of the glorious gospel and what you came and did for them at Calvary? That, Lord, that sin had been imputed upon you and you've given them a right standing with the father so that they can look upon Jesus and have their sins forgiven and washed clean. Father, we pray that you'd use this word to save somebody this morning. Father, for us who believe that Christianity is lived apart from obedience to your word, Lord, convict our hearts. Cause us to be strengthened in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.